A season-defining win for the Browns in Baltimore. What a bye week did for the San Francisco 49ers' confidence and overall health and the return of Kyler Murray. Highlight a Week 10 as we're past the halfway point of the NFL season. Did the punishment fit the crime as Jim Harbaugh was suspended the final three games of the regular season for his involvement in sign-stealing? The Wolverines didn't skip a beat as they handled the Nittany Lions on Saturday as we're a couple of weeks away from college football coming to a close. Some new faces in new places when it comes to managerial positions in Major League Baseball, including the new Mets skipper, Carlos Mendoza. Who? Some early surprises in the NBA. A first coach fired in Edmonton, I told you. Break up the San Jose Sharks as they finally win a game or two in the NHL. Speaking of which, I'm back on the scene after a few days off with plenty to get off my chest as I deliver what's happening in sports. It's all coming up. But first, this message. J Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, the J Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, Castbox, all of the major platforms that are out there. Whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there. Especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the j Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. I don't know what's wrong with my throat here or my voice, but anyway, cruising into the middle of November with Thanksgiving just 10 days away. Count them. After a little respite, your favorite little podcast host has returned with the first of two episodes this week as I have a lot to get into as this. Is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me, going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as last Monday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And yes, I did take a bit of a break where a family vacation, a little bit of an impromptu one, took place in Virginia with my in-laws, and I had a great time. It was wonderful. The weather was actually mild, but being in rural Virginia was certainly... A 180 to what I'm used to here in the Northeast, especially Metropolis in New York City. But it was great to get away. And yes, I know I was away last month in Paris and Rome and people are saying, Jay Reels, what if all of a sudden you become this traveling fool where you're flying overseas or heading a little bit south to the mid-Atlantic states? Well, hey, that's just how it's been, I guess, the last month or so. And I get it, that life does get in the way. And even though last Thursday with everything that had popped up between Monday and Thursday... Here I am to deliver not only the first of two podcasts, but hopefully from now through the rest of the year, even with Thanksgiving, as I mentioned, now we could count on two hands how many days are left between now and then, but we will certainly close out this year in big time style with a lot that's on the horizon, and you definitely want to keep your fingers on this pulse when it comes to the podcast because there are changes coming, and that is a promise, not a threat. So let's get right to it. NFL, yesterday, a crazy week 10. From the standpoint, you had a record five games that ended in a walk-off field goal with time expiring. And even though not all the games were great, as I'll get to in a few minutes, but we had some just crazy endings to some of these games, including big ones. And I'll get to the two in particular. You had the Seahawks kick a field goal there late against the Commanders. For them to walk off and keep pace with the 49ers who had a big day in Jacksonville. And obviously I'll touch on that. You had the Lions and Chargers and a wild one there at SoFi where Jared Goff, I believe he'd been back 
when he played against the Rams at some point over the last couple of years. But some familiar surroundings for the former Ram quarterback as the Lions continue to chug along this season, now 7-2 in the NFC North. And that's going to be an interesting race between them and the Vikings because they still have two games left and the Vikings are on a five-game winning streak. So we'll have to pay attention a little bit to what's going on there. Although we think that the Lions will prevail and become the NFC North champs when it's all said and done and have a home game in their building for the first time forever. As a matter of fact, I don't even think they've even hosted a home game at Ford Field ever since they opened it back in 2001. So we have that. We also have a scenario where the Arizona Cardinals with Kyler Murray, and I want to unpack that a little bit later on, although the Cardinals are going nowhere, but they also kicked their last second field goal thanks to the heroics of their quarterback. They don't have to worry about Clayton Toon being under center for the Arizona Cardinals. And then you have the Bengals who had to play from behind all day. They did jump off to a 7-0 lead, but give it up. The C.J. Stroud-led Texans, who had a big week last week, if you recall, with the five touchdowns and 470 yards. And then yesterday, what did he throw for? About 360 on top of that against a good Bengal defense. Well, they got a last-second field goal to win in Cincinnati. And then you had the big one, which I'll start off here, between the Browns and Ravens. Now, mind you, I was traveling... Yesterday, driving back to New York City, and I was listening to the Steeler game. Everybody knows I'm a Steeler fan, so I was in tune with what's going on at Three Rivers or Acrisure or Heinz Field, whatever you want to call that stadium. But I was keeping an eye on what was happening in Baltimore to see how the Browns were going to do in a big game in a place where they haven't won in forever. I think the last time they won was maybe before the pandemic. If I recall, I think it was week two where Nick Chubb had 166 yards and the Browns put up 40 points in Baltimore. I believe that was the last time that they won down in the Charm City. But for Cleveland to put themselves in a hole, they were down early in the game. And then before you know it, it was 24-9 after Lamar Jackson connected with Odell Beckham Jr. And I thought to myself, this is going to be another route. This is going to be another performance where I'm sure... Not only just in Cleveland, but everybody outside of Cleveland is going to think, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a big-time defense. This is supposed to be a team that was going to maybe sneak up on people or maybe be somewhere in the vicinity of being one of the top five seeds in the AFC when it was all said and done. And then all of a sudden, they just turned on the Jets. The Browns, for whatever reason, they came back to life. I understand Lamar Jackson also attributed to that by throwing a pick six himself where Deshaun Watson did that early on in the game, but for the Browns to have this tremendous comeback, and no matter how you want to factor in whether it was just them coming together on the sidelines, down 24-9, or catching a break or two, especially after that pick six, but to Sean Watson, who even with the shoulder injury early on this year, missing a few games, who had his moments, especially in the game last week against Arizona, but who anybody's going to play well against the Cardinals, especially if they're going to be in their home building. But for Watson to kind of pick up the pieces and lead this team to victory, it goes without saying how much this is going to be, you would think, a springboard for the Browns to go into those heights in the AFC and maybe even flirt with winning a division. Because as you know, it is very tight in the AFC North as of today. You have the Ravens, who are 7-3, followed by Cleveland and Pittsburgh, 6-3. And and they have a monumental matchup this Sunday in Cleveland, Steelers-Browns. And I'll get to that more on Thursday. And then you have the Bengals, who, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, suffered that loss at home against the Texans. And they are currently 5-4. So it is a tight squeeze in the AFC North. And when it's all said and done, you would think it is going to be a battle royale. And funny enough, because in... Three nights. Speaking of Steelers-Browns, you're going to have Bengals going to Ravens there. Finally, you're going to get a very good Thursday night game. And I don't know what the quality of the game is going to be as far as from a health standpoint because that game would be better suited to be played on Sunday than Thursday because the team was at home, the Bengals, yesterday, but they got to travel to Baltimore. I understand it's not as if they're going from coast to coast, but because they have a short work week, they do have to travel down to Baltimore, and then let's see how the game unfolds where you are finally going to get a matchup 
that you could sink your teeth into as opposed to watching Carolina and Chicago. So you have that to look forward to to start off your week 11. But for the Browns to have that type of win, that is a statement game. That is a win that you would think is going to have them steamroll throughout the rest of the year. Not to say they're going to go on a seven or eight game winning streak. But with the Steelers coming into their building and they want to exact revenge from the Monday night game all the way back in week two. That was a game Nick Chubb got hurt. Deshaun Watson was awful in the game and the Steelers had two defensive touchdowns in order for them to propel to victory and win 26-22. But as of right this second, the Browns have a lot going for themselves and even without Nick Chubb and Watson not really being even a shadow of what he was in Houston. I'm not trying to make him out to be an MVP of the league or he was one of the top three quarterbacks in the sport during his time down in H-Town. But for the Browns, you would think they finally got a little bit of the piano off the back, winning in Baltimore the way they did. And then for them to have that spark, knowing that the Steelers are going to come into their building, the fan base is going to be rabid. This is a game that you know the team and especially the citizens and of course the faithful there out by Lake Erie are going to want this game in the worst way and really put the Steelers, not to say off into the sunset or out of their misery for any stretch of the imagination. But for right this moment, the Browns got to give it up in a big win. And on the flip side of that, shockingly, Baltimore spit up a big game at home. And we've seen that with this Raven team over the last couple of years. If you remember all the way back in week two of last year where the Dolphins had, what, 35 points in the second half and just blew the doors off of the Ravens. Even earlier this year, I know it was tooth and nail, but they ended up losing to the Indianapolis Colts in an inexplicable game there, more so by the head coach than the team as far as his decision-making goes. And there were a couple games last year, and I understand you can't go back to last year, but it's not as if this team, the way they're constructed, it's pretty much the same personnel. The quarterback, some skill positions, I know OBJ wasn't there, Zay Flowers, etc. But you still have a lot of the cast of characters that were on the team last year, And when you see them lose a game in their building against a division opponent, not to say that the sky's going to start falling or there's going to be concern all over the place, but that's one that you're going to have to watch for, especially when you get deeper into the season and even more so in the postseason. Because the Ravens, like I mentioned, they play from in front better than anybody. They're just like the San Francisco 49ers in that regard. And they're not a team that's going to want to play catch-up. And here it was with the big lead there in the third quarter, They spit it up. So we'll have to wait and see how that's going to factor in down the road with the Ravens. And then with the Bengals, like I mentioned, that was a tough loss. Give it up for the Texans. And they've certainly done themselves some favors in the AFC South. Because think about this. There's a big matchup on the horizon between both teams. And the Texans already have the tiebreaker as they beat the Jaguars head-to-head in Jacksonville, I might add where the Jaguars are going to have to go to NRG Stadium to play the Texans, and they are red hot with their quarterback, just playing as well as you could possibly imagine. The rookie, C.J. Stroud, I talked about his exploits there with what he did last week with the 470 yards, and and then obviously yesterday, the big game that he had, even flashing the Ohio sign, remember, of course, him being a Buckeye, and maybe he stuck it to some of the Bengal fans, but... Maybe in that region, you do have some Ohio State fans that maybe looked at that with a little bit of a chuckle. But for the Bengals to try to keep pace with what's happening there in the AFC North, that was a tough loss. Because if they would have won that game, they would have been 6-3, and three, tied with the Steelers and the Browns. And the Bengals and Steelers have not played one another yet. In fact, they play the week after next, which will be interesting to see how the Steelers stack up against Cincinnati, which... Right now, although they've had, I'm not going to say their number because the Bengals have won, I believe, four of the past five regular season games, and that's a lot, dating back to 1992 because the Steelers have owned the Bengals. But to get off the AFC North, that was also a huge loss, and as I mentioned, certainly going to be a big factor down the stretch of the season. Now let's get to it. Are the San Francisco 49ers back? Well, a bye week was the panacea, if that's the case, because with them starting off 5-0 and everybody thinking that 
they're punching their ticket to Super Bowl 58, and then they lose three straight, and it was inexplicable how Brock Purdy just all of a sudden fell like a stone in the ocean and was not playing well, and give credit to some of the defenses that he played against, whether it was Cleveland, Minnesota, and then for them to go into this bye with a three-game losing streak and then come out of it having to fly to Jacksonville, a team that's played well here and started off 6-2 and two in their season. And they not only took him to the back of the woodshed, but they corralled all the Jaguars and threw him in a cage and locked the door and threw away the key to the tune of 34-3. to And for San Francisco, I'm sure a lot of people, when they wake up this morning, they're going to think, oh, they have recalibrated. They have now a sense of purpose, refocused, reinvigorated, whatever you want to call it. But now you wonder whether or not the Niners are going to be primed for a big-time second half. And why not? They had a great start to their season, as we know. And yes, they did hit a couple of speed bumps along the way. And to me, this is more, I would say, on Jacksonville. Because when you look at the final score, with it being 34-3, you wonder what happened there with the Jaguars. They knew the type of team that was coming into their building. I get it that the... Niners play a little bit more physical than a lot of the teams in the NFL, and maybe they were a little bit flat-footed. Obviously, I didn't watch the game, as you all know, me driving up the Northeastern Corridor, but for Jacksonville, a little bit puzzling because not only did they lose badly to San Francisco at home, but early in the year, as I mentioned, to Houston, and not really having that home field advantage considering that they play their games in London and there's not a tremendous following or fan base for the Jaguars. I won't go crazy just yet, but an eyebrow is raised to wonder whether or not Jacksonville is going to be ready for primetime. And not to say that that game was in primetime, but you understand what I'm saying. Even with them winning a playoff game last year and giving the Chiefs all they could handle there in the division playoff round there last year. So that's something to keep an eye on. And then I only want to mention Kyler Murray for this reason. I get it that the Cardinals are going nowhere. And for him to come back, there was even a lot of doubt whether or not that the Cardinals should play him because even though he's getting paid a King's Ransom. But I believe there were some, if I'm not mistaken, I read some things in the contract that if he would have sat out, it wouldn't have counted a lot toward the cap, whether it was a percentage of plays, something along those lines. I'm not 100% clear on that. But with the franchise quarterback back in tow and for him to come in there and use his legs, and mind you, he's coming off of an ACL and him scrambling for a first down, I believe it was third and 10, where he looked like he was in a sandlot or in the backyard, running around, avoiding the pass rush, and him getting that first down, which led to the game-winning field goal at the end. Does it give the Cardinal fan any hope, and especially the head coach, Jonathan Gannon? At least maybe for one game, but do we think that Kyler Murray went in a big spot? And we've seen him deliver in games in the past. I know that one Hail Mary against Buffalo, if we recall, where... DeAndre Hopkins went high in the air and corralled that ball, that Hail Mary at the end of the game. We know Murray has the talent. We know he has the the ability. But you do wonder what's in his chest and also in his head with all the rumors and the reports about him not studying or getting fully into the film room or even just outside of the practice facility where he's going to fully invest in checking out the playbook and diagrams and things of that nature. Now, granted, that was with the previous coaching regime, but still, Murray's a guy that you have to be a little doubtful on whether or not he's fully invested when it comes to the game plan, especially offensively with the Cardinals. But he does provide excitement. He does provide some thrills. And he is a guy, like I said, does have ability and has escape ability in order to stretch plays, in order to extend plays, and give his team a fighting chance. Now, granted, the Falcons aren't the Dirty Bird Falcons of the 90s, and even though they didn't win anything, they did go to a Super Bowl, but my point being that we want to see this against maybe a little bit more of a formidable opponent, but they're still an NFL team, and give Murray credit in his first game back being heroic to pull his team out of the fire and procure a victory. But besides that, the rest of yesterday, even with all those games that I mentioned, and you had some... Wild ones there. The rest of the schedule was, eh. Do I even need to get into the Thursday night game with Chicago and Carolina? Seriously? Or even the London game of Indianapolis and New England, 10-6? Seriously? 
or last night, and I get it that Zach Wilson threw a bad interception when the Jets were driving there late, and then they had the Hail Mary there, which imagine if that would have happened, the Jet fan would have been ecstatic. And even with the reports of Aaron Rodgers talking on the sideline there Monday night with Derwin James saying that he's going to be back sometime, what was it, in the next few weeks, maybe even early December, and then he had to refute that with Pat McAfee, but he is targeting for a mid-December return, so we'll have to wait and see on that. But was that a game that you were going to be fully invested and have your eyes peeled to watch every play the white knuckler that it came down to at the end of that game on NBC? I don't think so. Tonight you have Denver and Buffalo, which, all right, Denver's played better of late. And even though they're not going to really have much to play for, but Buffalo, we understand that they're going to be fighting for their lives here. What is their record? Five and four, even after losing to the Bengals there last Sunday. But far from a marquee matchup there on ESPN tonight. And then to round it all out, I understand Washington and Seattle was interesting. It came down to that last second kick as I talked about. But one more time, even with Seattle keeping pace with the 49ers, is that a game that everybody's going to rally around and say, oh, I got to watch Seahawks and Commanders? Uh Uh-uh. You can talk about Tampa beating Tennessee, getting off the snide themselves after their early start of 3-1. and So they're able to get a win against Tennessee and Will Levis, who did not play well in this game. What did he throw for? 199 yards and was... 19 for 39, so certainly some rookie mistakes. Not that it was all on him, but did not play as well as he did the previous game against the Steelers there on Thursday night, even though it ended in an interception with Quan Alexander, and I'll get to him in a minute. But uh, Tennessee did not show up or show out there in Tampa as the Buccaneers won, so was that a game that you're going to go crazy? I don't think so. New Orleans and Minnesota... Josh Dobbs, he is writing a storybook season here, considering that he started off his year in Arizona. Then by trade, I don't know why, maybe they felt as if Kyler Murray was going to come back, so they thought, let's get a bag of footballs for Dobbs, who by any means, and I'll say this nicely, was okay during his tenure there, his very short tenure, or a cup of coffee there in the desert. But look what he's done in Minnesota, two wins Beating the Saints there yesterday, 27-19. Giving them some hope with Kirk Cousins down for the season with an Achilles. And the Vikings are now 6-4 and four in the NFC North. And as I mentioned, they still have two games against the Detroit Lions before you know it. And I think, I have to look at the schedule, I believe those games are later in the year where they're going to play two of the final three weeks of the season. Let me take a look at that just to be accurate. But could you imagine if the season does come down to those two games? And as I take a look at it here, yes, Christmas Eve, the Lions will go to Minnesota. And then the final game of the season, just two weeks later, at Detroit. And it may just come down to that. And just to look at Minnesota's schedule, they have the Broncos coming up. And that is a Sunday night. And I get it that the Vikings have played better. And maybe if the Broncos win tonight miraculously in Buffalo, not to say that Buffalo is Lambo of yesteryear, but for the Broncos, if they somehow, someway win this game, they can make that game at least a little bit more appealing. But as we talked about weeks earlier, Broncos are going to be on the schedule a lot in prime time. Same for the Vikings. And you're going to see it here over the matter of six days, tonight in Orchard Park, and then later this week, Sunday night in Mile High. But then the... Minnesota then goes, oh, they host the Bears at home. They go to the Raiders, which may be interesting now because the Raiders are at 500. And I'm sure they're feeling a lot better about themselves beating both New York teams the last two weeks. And even though they got out of Dodge with a win there last night, as I talked about Sunday night, the Jets faltering there down the stretch. But with some renewed energy and a big giant burst of fresh air with Antonio Pierce at the helm, you don't have to worry about the stuffy, stiff Josh McDaniels. Who knows? Are the Raiders going to go on a run? I don't believe in Aiden McConnell, but hey, or Aiden O'Connell, excuse me, but have at it, Raider fans. Please be my guest. And then the Vikings do go to Cincinnati after that, and then you have the Lions, Packers, and then at Lions to close out the season. So it's all in front of the Vikings if Josh Dobbs could continue this magic carpet ride of his to see if 
maybe not even win a division, but even get to the playoffs when they started off 1-4, and four, that would be a miracle. But who knows? The NFC is so weak that you would think that as long as they play a little bit above average, they're going to make it to the postseason. That's all there is to it. Dallas waxed the Giants again, 49-17. Do I really need to unpack that? What else am I missing here on the schedule? And that is it. Now, the Steeler game yesterday, I was listening to that. Steelers got out to the lead early with Najee Harris, 7-0. The Packers tied it. And Jordan Love, based on what I heard, he played pretty well until that fourth quarter and made some big throws. And he had a big throw there on the penultimate drive of the game where they completed a big 46-yard pass. I don't know what happened with the Steeler defense there where they threw to the tight end, Luke Musgrave. And... At 23-19, they needed a touchdown there. Jordan Love gets picked after the deflection by Patrick Peterson there in the end zone. Then Keanu Neal gets the interception and hurt himself on the play. I don't know what his prognosis is. But then the Steelers gave the ball back and the Packers were driving again. But then Jordan Love throws another interception to seal the fate there. DeMonte KZ gets the pick. Then they had the melee on the sidelines where KZ was pushed out of bounds, well out of bounds. And you had a fracas there on the Steelers' sideline. But nevertheless, the Steelers survive another game. Quan Alexander, who I mentioned before, back-to-back weeks where they lose inside linebackers. Cole Holcomb the week before against Tennessee, two in Achilles, and the same now for Quan Alexander. So the Steelers' defense hurting a little bit. You have to wonder whether or not they're going to be able to maybe sign somebody and just try to plug and play along the way here over the final eight games of the season. But the Steelers offensively, again, they have their stretches where they get first downs and they do just enough. And I get it. That's all you need to do in order to win games. And they do have a toughness about them that even with the Packers and even coming out of the gate, come to think of it, when the Packers had the ball, they kicked field goals there on the two possessions to make it 19-17. And the Steelers were doing nothing offensively. And then all of a sudden, you get George Pickens here, you get Anaji Harris there, you get Jalen Warren who had 101 yards on the ground. And they do just enough, like I said, to either put themselves in a position where they kick field goals. Chris Boswell, we know, is an excellent field goal kicker. And the Steelers, although you had to sweat a little bit, and the defense certainly bent a little bit, but did not break. And here they are at 6-3. and three. I said it before, and I'll say it again. They're doing it with smoke and mirrors. But now they're going to get into the teeth of their schedule. Because the next two weeks, Pittsburgh goes to Cleveland, as I mentioned. And then they follow that up with a trip to Cincinnati. Let's see how they look after these two games. If they split these two games, good for them. But they could go now from 6-3 and three to 6-5 and five in a hurry. And after you polish off your Thanksgiving leftovers, you're either going to have a stomach ache and feel just real queasy. And if you're a Steeler fan, you may end up barfing at what you may see here over the next two weeks. Or who knows? Maybe you're flying high and if you get a split, and that's all you could ask for here. I get it, division games on the road are always tricky and the Steelers, for whatever the reason, they always play well against these teams. Not more so Cincinnati here as of late, as I mentioned earlier. But they have beaten Cleveland and even though there's no Ben Roethlisberger there to punish the Ohio teams the way he did during his tenure there as the Steeler quarterback. But now, it's right in front of the Steelers to really do some damage in this division. They're already 2-0 in the AFC North and imagine if they were to split 3-1, you take it. I'm not expecting a sweep here by any stretch, but I expect them to get swept more than they would do to sweeping. And I'll just leave it right there. And that's what you have for an NFL Week 10 as we look ahead to Week 11. And we'll talk more about that next week, or I should say on Thursday, excuse me, when we reconvene at that time. Now, as I turn my attention to the college circuit and all that was discussed there last week was what happened there at Michigan. And it came up to almost the 11th hour as word came down Friday afternoon that Jim Harbaugh, the Big Ten, suspended him for the final three games of the regular season, which meant at Penn State, Maryland, and Ohio State. And does the punishment fit the crime? Now, I'm sure whatever they uncovered throughout the course of the last few weeks, you would think that, I'm not going to say it's a slap on the wrist, 
To me, what really would have been damning is if they said, no Jim Harbaugh for the rest of the year. Now, my thinking is, because he was suspended at the beginning of the year, and granted, that was self-imposed by the university, so that had nothing to do with the Big Ten or the NCAA, and then to bookend the regular season with a three-game suspension handed down, I'm sure they thought that if they were to get out of these three games alive, chances are they're going to win the Big Ten championship and then they're going to be in the final four and that's where the NCAA is going to step in and I'm sure they probably looked at it the Big Ten that is I'm sure they looked at it from a standpoint of let's see what happens over the final course of these three games here and then if they do happen to win the Big Ten championship let's see if the NCAA does anything about that now as we've seen over the last two years Michigan has spit the bit during the semifinals to where they were unable to get to the championship game as they got whacked by Georgia two years ago and then last year imploded in that loss to TCU as they pretty much gave the game away but now I would think the NCAA they're probably not going to do anything and it would be weak sauce that if the last two games you would think that Michigan's going to beat Maryland it's all about Ohio State And I'm sure Ohio State is going to be chomping at the bit, although it's not a vintage Ohio State team as we know. And the game is in Ann Arbor. It's not in Columbus. But for Michigan at this point, I would think that they're going to win these next two games. I'm not going to say easily, and I'm not going to say it's a formality. But as the weeks move on, I would think that the pressure is going to rise. And I would think the pressure is even going to be bigger that game against Ohio State because it's in their building they know if they win that game chances are they're going to make it to the Final Four again and Ohio State two game losing streak I'm sure they're going to do their damnedest to upset that apple cart and to send Michigan packing into the offseason well they'll have a bowl game but they won't be playing for a championship and it would be weak sauce at the NCAA if Michigan happens to lose over the next two weeks that they hand down the suspension where Harbaugh can't coach in the bowl game. I mean, seriously? Now, if they run the table, let's see the NCAA do that then, which I don't think they'll have the guts to do. But there's still a lot of time between now and then. And do I think the punishment fits the crime? I'd say no. And for this reason only. If the Big Ten, I get it. They didn't want to be the bad boys on the block. They figured that We'll take care of the regular season. Let's see what the NCAA does once the regular season is over and especially the Big Ten Championship because then they'll have to step in and they'll have to do the Big Ten's dirty work. But for Michigan and for Harbaugh, if there's smoke, there's fire. And he needs to be suspended the rest of the year because you cannot have staff members, you can't have people booking flights to go film practices or to be on their sideline to do certain things. You can't do that. Now, you want to cheat on the fly. You want to have a guy maybe in the skybox or in the press box or luxury box, whatever you want to call it, for them to see if they could get the binoculars out and try to pick up those signs or write them down or filming them would be bad because that's where you're using technology in that regard. But all right, you have a guy with the binoculars and you have... The intern next to you where they're writing stuff down or three pats to the head or there was a tug on the sleeve or whatever. You want to write that down and try to add up what these signs mean? Have at it. I don't have a problem with it. But to have any type of cameras, to have any type, you know, the iPads, to have all these different gadgets in front of you to try to steal these signs, that's a no-no. You want to do it where you have 20 people there, like I said, whether it's on your sideline to try to track down what's going on the other side or up in the box to where you could get a bird's eye view and have somebody jot down notes or try to pick up those signs from somewhere, be my guest. But Harbaugh, to me, should have been suspended the rest of the year. I understand it may be harsh. I understand it may be, oh, come on, Jay Reels, give me a break, blah, blah, blah. No. Michigan has played its soft schedules, we know. Let's face it, when you're playing the Bowling Greens and the Nevadas of the world early on when they had that imposed three-game suspension, I could have coached that team to victories. Let's call it as we see it. 
And here I am talking about this, and I haven't even touched on a game against Penn State on Saturday because I was also in the midst of driving during that time. But not to say Michigan was impressive in the game. I think it was more Penn State's ineptitude on offense, and it showed because they fired their offensive coordinator after that game. And you can say bye-bye to Penn State's chances of making it to the Final Four for sure after they got their second loss. But Michigan did what Michigan did. Ho-hum, matter of fact. It wasn't 37 nothing. It wasn't anything that, oh, wow, that I should be surprised. And I understand maybe there was some pressure on Michigan to perform here, considering the news the day before that they're not going to have their coach for the rest of the year. But Penn State's not a big-time team. I get it in the rankings it shows. But all you need to do is see what you had to see the last couple of weeks. The Ohio State game in their building just disgraceful, and then obviously there on Saturday where the Nittany Lions were just a no-show against Michigan. That's all there is to it. And I would think that, we'll have to wait and see what's going to happen in the coming weeks, but I would think that Harbaugh is looking for the exits. Now, the perfect storm would be for Michigan to make it into the college football playoff for him to coach those games, win the semifinal game, and then win a national championship, which I don't think is going to happen, even if he is on the sidelines. Because again, Michigan's played nobody, and even though they may salivate to want to face Georgia again, but I don't even think they're going to stack against the Bulldogs. But with that being said, I think he's going to be looking for the exits because this is going to be too much to bear if he does get suspended, whether it be for the semifinal, if they do make it that far, or even if it's a scenario where the NCAA does come down on him where he can't even coach in the bowl game, I would think the NFL is going to be the next stop for him. Because how is he going to come back next year with all that has happened and took place this year with the bowl suspensions and obviously with the sign-stealing scandal, it's kind of the Astros 2017 all over again. How does he come back? So that's what I'll say there. And as far as college football on a whole, oh, let me get to Jimbo Fisher. Let's talk about this real quick. Here's a guy that the Aggies paid, how much for this guy? $95 million, whatever his contract was. And if you recall the squabble last year when he had all those recruits, I believe he had the second biggest recruitment in college football going into last season. And you had Nick Saban sniping at Fisher, talking about, oh, now we've taken a step back because Fisher's taken a lot of the recruits and blah, blah, blah. And Fisher just shrugged his shoulders, said, oh, well. And they have done absolute squat, zilch, zero the Aggies, since that time. And here it is, fired before he even got to the end of this year, where, get this, the university is going to have to dole out $76 million that's left on his contract. Could you imagine? What kind of racket is that where I could get a job, get signed on the dotted line, all these millions of dollars, get a pink slip, and here's your parting gift. What a country. Only in America could that ever happen. But hey, that was their decision. Now they're going to have to find another coach. I don't even know who the interim is. I could care less because the Aggies, they're not even anywhere near the discussion when it comes to what's going to happen here over the course of the next few weeks. So I just had to throw that in there as he is out as coach of Texas A&M. Besides that, you had a couple of barn burners, especially in the Pac-12, where Oregon did beat USC And the Huskies beat the Utes there of Utah. Both of those games were barn burners. And I would think Washington, same for Oregon too. That's where you would have to wonder if their defense is going to be able to step up in a big spot. Because as you get deeper into the college football season, and we would think that Oregon and Washington, they're going to butt heads again before it's all said and done. And it could be for a spot in the college football Final Four. But besides those two teams or those two games, you really didn't have much to chew on. I know you had the ginormous performance there by Jaden Daniels, LSU, as they trounced Florida, where Daniels had, what, 606 yards of total offense? What do you have, 370 in the air and like 250 on the ground? I mean, it was just ridiculous, or a little bit over 200. I believe he's the only quarterback to throw for over 350 and rush for over 200 in the same game. And I get it, Florida, Swiss cheese defense, so maybe that attributed to the gaudy numbers that Daniels got, the quarterback again of the Tigers. But nothing else to really just be up in arms or to really keep an eyeball out for this past Saturday on the schedule. It's really been whole hum these last few weeks 
overall. And again, you've had some barn burners. You've had some games where it was high scoring. And again, a lot of that is the Pac-12. As like I mentioned weeks ago, they're going out with a bang here. And it's sad because as we know with USC, UCLA, and Oregon, and a bunch of other teams that are just packing their things and heading to other conferences after this year. But that's just how it is in football. What else can you say when... The sport is just going to have its top teams and the ranking is pretty much status quo as we've seen here over the last few weeks and not only the top 25, but the coaches poll, whether it's Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State, Florida State, your top four. Then you have Washington, Oregon, Texas, the next three, and then Alabama, Louisville crept up into the top 10 at nine and then Oregon State. And I would think those teams from one through eight have as good of a shot to get to a Final Four. Now, of course, things have to break the right way. We'll get into the schedule on Thursday to see what lies ahead in college football as we get closer to Thanksgiving weekend. And, of course, that's going to be the rivalry weekend. Obviously, Ohio State-Michigan is going to headline that. But college football, now we're down to the final couple of weeks of the season. Again, you've had some moments, but nothing that's been earth-shattering as far as movement or just shaking up the snow globe to see how the teams have fared and teams leapfrogging one another to get into that top four. It's been the same top four pretty much since day one and obviously over the course of the last month, five weeks or so. All right, now I'm going to put on my cleats and get into the batter's box because I want to talk a little baseball here. And before I get to the NBA and NHL, You've had some managerial changes, and quite a few of them over the past week, and one being the Met manager, but I'll get to that one in a moment. You've had a lot of, maybe even controversy, I'll go as far as saying that, last week, because Craig Council, a lot of people thought that he was going to come to New York, he did interview for the position with David Stearns being the former executive of the Milwaukee Brewers, as we all know, and who knows how that interview went. You would think it went well. I'm sure there may have been some differences. Who knows when it comes to strategies and just overall how to put together a lineup. I'm sure Stearns and Council, they've done that a million times in their sleep. But who knows with Steve Cohen, maybe the dollar amount was just too rich. And this is coming from a guy who's worth, what, $13, $14 billion. But when it was all said and done, Council decided to take his talents down whatever that interstate is from Wisconsin into Illinois, 90 miles or 90 minutes from Milwaukee to Chicago, the north side that is, to be a member of the Cubs. And the controversy is Jed Hoyer, the GM of the Cubs, saying bye-bye to David Ross, the current manager, who actually had a good year. And I totally understand that the final week, notwithstanding losing to the Braves in just crushing fashion, where they had two big leads and they lost, and then losing to, ironically, the Brewers there in the final series of the year. But for Hoyer to fire Ross, bad sign there, because Ross was a guy that won him a championship in 2016, and for all intents and purposes, everybody loved as the skipper of the Cubs. Well, now he gets jettisoned. You bring in counsel, five years, $40 million, a guy who is one in nine in his last 10 playoff games, who I don't see any managerial World Series rings on his finger. We know he won with the Marlins in 97 and then with the Diamondbacks in 2001. Give it up, but let me see that as far as him being the head honcho, the guy in charge in the dugout. We have not seen that. And like I mentioned, nine of his last 10 L's in the postseason. And the Cubs, you could say, getting rid of one guy to bring him in, even though the familiarity, and I guess he interviewed well, or was there even an interview process considering Ross still had a job? That was inexplicable to say the least. So talk about a terrible job by the Cubs there. I don't even know if Ross's contract was up. I would have thought that when he signed his deal, he may have had one year left. Maybe he had an option, who knows. But that was just a bad job by the Cubs there. But now you bring in counsel. Let's see what he does as a member of the Cubs to see if they can bring him back to anything close to what they did in the middle 20-teens, making all those playoff appearances, including that elusive World Series, as we know. But before I even get to the Mets, and I understand that ties in with Council and his connection there with Stearns, but you had 
Stephen Vogt go to the Guardians. He's going to have some big shoes to fill, obviously, with Terry Francona retiring just a few weeks ago. You also have Joe Espada. Remember him? He was a guy that was even rumored to get the Met job not only years ago with Carlos Beltran. Remember that scenario where he was the manager of the Mets for about 30 seconds before he was let go? But Espada, who is a guy, a lot of respect throughout baseball, especially in Houston. He now is the new skipper there for the Astros. You also have Ron Washington, who managed the Texas Rangers many years ago, if you recall. Also the third base coach, I believe was third base coach, of the Atlanta Braves over the last half decade or so. Now is the head man in Anaheim. As Let's see how that team's going to look as we get into the hot stove free agency and especially into next year. Will Shohei Otani be a part of that? I don't think so. Will even Mike Trout be on the team? Have to wait and see. So there may be a new look Angel team when it's all said and done as Ron Washington will now be the manager there. And then you have Carlos Mendoza. Who is he? Ladies and gentlemen, he was your bench coach on the Yankees for Aaron Boone. And I'm going to get to the Yankees in a second. But Mendoza was a guy who was in the hip or maybe a sidekick if you will, of Aaron Boone. And I didn't know who this guy was when I heard his name if he fell on me. But we see the direction that the Mets are going here. And sadly, this is a movie that not only have I seen once, but I've seen twice here over the last five, six years. We saw that with Mickey Calloway. We saw that with Luis Rojas. And sadly, and I would not be surprised if it goes the same way here with Mendoza. And I get it, we got to give him a chance. We have to see how he's going to perform here as a manager with all the expectations, the resources, and a fan base that just grumbles by the second. Is he going to be the guy that's going to take us to the promised land? As it is with David Stearns in the mix and with a new regime there, as VP of Baseball Ops, we all know that this is going to be a collaborative effort. As I mentioned before, and I'll say it one last time, and sadly, I'm probably going to say it plenty of times down the road, but this is going to be a thing where it's all going to be about the iPad and not the eye test. It's going to be a thing where the game is going to be figured out three hours prior to. It's not going to be in real time. It's not going to unfold in front of us to see what is the right move, when is the right time to pull a guy, when is the right time to pinch hit, all of it. Because it's going to be determined around 4.30 when the manager, the GM, the front office huddles around on any given night to say, all right, we're going to put this guy as cleanup. We're going to have this person come out in the sixth inning as the third time goes around the batting order. Sadly, this is baseball in 2023. And Mendoza is going to be a puppet just like all the other young managers in baseball. And to me, what's the over-under for him? I guess it's two and a half right now and in years, I might add. Does he make it over or under? That's the big question. And what are the Steinbrenners doing? In particular, Hal. I understand it's just Hal because Hank, sadly, is dearly departed. But for Hal Steinbrenner to come out and say and even admit that he approached the players to get his opinion and feel on Aaron Boone. What? Who does that? That's like a CEO of a major corporation. I'll just throw Coca-Cola, for instance. That's like the CEO going to the IT department, going to the employees there, and one by one, and I don't know if it was one by one, but let's just say there was a smattering. I'm sure there was more than a handful. We know that Aaron Judge was part of this. We know that Garrett Cole was part of this. We would think Giancarlo Stanton. We would think there were a couple of other players that were maybe involved here. Maybe not Anthony Volpe, and who knows, maybe it was. But let's just say that the CEO of Coca-Cola goes to the IT department and talks to every one of the guys and gals in the department, except for the manager, but to find out how the manager is doing and whether or not we should keep him. Seriously? And I don't want to hear that. Oh, well, hey, it's thought-provoking. 
He's trying to do something different. He's trying to get the pulse of the employees there as far as how the manager's done. As fans, as we've seen here over the last six, seven years, as long as Boone has been the manager of this team, and again, it goes back to the collaborative effort as we've talked about time in and time out, Boone is not going to be cut for this job. He just isn't. And we've seen that over the course of the last half decade plus. And for Steinbrenner to do that, I was baffled. His dad isn't turning in his grave. He is spinning in his grave because we all know that Boone probably wouldn't have made it out of the second year of his deal. And who knows, the Yankees probably would have been on their fifth manager by now, but at least he goes out swinging and trying and fighting. Where Hal, it's just, well, he's great with the guys and yes, they have the right attitude and yes, he plugs away and he looks out for their best interests. Again, he's a babysitter. He doesn't show enough fire. He doesn't show enough spunk. And I get it. This isn't Earl Weaver. This isn't Lou Pinella. This isn't a generation or two generations ago where the manager is going to flip at home plate and throw dirt on home plate. And even though Boone has shown that, which is ironic because you do not see any antics from any of these managers other than Boone, whether he's mocking umpires behind home plate, whether he's talking about how his savages are in a dugout, whether Mike picks that up behind home plate. And nobody's questioning... Boone, as far as him being loyal and him sticking up and fighting for his guys. But guess what? Managing isn't just that. Because if that was the case, nobody would get fired. But for Hal Steinbrenner to turn a blind eye and to read the tea leaves, and I understand that he's the owner of the team, he can do whatever he wants. And at the same time, he's not going to listen to the fans because the old adage is, if you're going to listen to the fans, soon enough you're going to end up sitting with them. But because he's the owner... That's not going to be the case unless he sells the team, which is not going to happen in a zillion years. But with all that being said, I was just shocked to hear that he talked to the players about Aaron Boone on whether or not he should keep him. And that right then and there, people, should show and prove to you that this is a far cry from the Yankee teams of yesteryear. And even though they said they're going to uncover every free agency, manhole cover, and they're going to do... Whatever it takes to try to get themselves back into the postseason and make a deep postseason run. But with this regime, do I trust them? Considering that they have not let go of the GM who's been there for 25 years. And the manager who gets another year added on and did not make the playoffs last year and was barely above 500. It's almost as if, all right, we're pissed off. All right, we do not like the result. All right, let's go back to the drawing board. But everything's fine. Everything's rosy. It was just a injury here. It was just a bump here. It was just an error there. That's okay. We'll be fine. We'll be all as well in kumbaya land. And away we go. Do you hear any other owners in the sport do things like this? Or have done something even close, remotely close to this? I rest my case. All right, let me turn my attention to the NBA and NHL before we bid adieu. Let's start off with the in-season tournament. It has done nothing for me, people. I'm sorry. Not to say that I'm watching every basket or every second or I'm super glued to what's going on here with the in-season tournament, but let's call it as we see it. To me, here, what is it now, 10 days into this, it hasn't heightened the level of attention or pique my interest to the point where it's like, ooh, I got to see what's happening here with this in-season tournament or what's going to go on between now and, let's say, December 3rd before they embark on this Final Four, semifinal, and then final there the first week of next month. Sorry, it hasn't done it for me. I don't know if it's done it for you guys and gals. If it has, please let me know. Hit me up on any of my socials, which we'll talk about later on. But one more time, people, if you thought that this was going to be not going to go as far as saying a turning point, but certainly do enough to say, hey, let me really see what's going on here with this in-season tournament. Or, wow, this is different. Or, now, like I mentioned last week, the courts, you got to turn your eyes and avert them because it is just tough to watch all the colors and it's just too much if you ask me. But I get it. It is gimmicky. It is a stick. And to me, I'm not going to say it's an epic fail or fail, but it's done nothing for me. So I'll give them a C-, maybe at worst D+, 
but it's the same old sport and it hasn't really done anything to enhance that. That's just me. I don't know how you guys and gals feel. But some early surprises here and not necessarily on the plus side. Now you have the Sixers after losing the first game against the Bucks. They've been on fire. They've won eight in a row and they had that terrible story with Kelly Oubre Jr. where he got hit by a car and had some broken ribs and multiple cuts and bruises and you had Tyrese Maxey drop 50 on the Pacers there last night where again, 8-1 and one, flying out of the gate and I picked him as an under this year and who knows, maybe the James Harden aura and everything that was hanging around this team dating back to last year, offseason, training camp, right at the eve of the NBA season had been lifted and they have just been phenomenal where I'm sure Doc Rivers who's now doing the games on ESPN he has to be with a side eye thinking like oh geez is this what it took for the Sixers to maybe fulfill some of this potential now granted it's nine games I'm not going to get crazy to think that they're going to have a 64 win season and they're already starting the parade route for a championship but that is one big surprise if you ask me how they played but We've seen a lot of these teams that we expect to play well, more so in the West there in the East. Now, Golden State, now they started off well, but they have now lost three in a row, six and five. I know Curry put up 38 last night in a loss, and then you had Draymond get ejected there. I know he was bickering about something where it seems like it's the same song and dance when it comes to him, where he got two texts and was ousted. But the Clippers have not played well. I understand they're on a long road trip here in the East Coast. They lost to the Knicks and Nets where Harden played in his first game. And he said he felt good even though he doesn't have the reps. But they certainly have not fared as they are in a five-game losing streak and are three and six. Also, the same could be said for the Phoenix Suns who are now four and six and have gotten off to a very slow start for them. And I mentioned this in the NBA preview. Kevin Durant, we understand all-time great. And I don't want to put this all on him, but considering going from Golden State to Brooklyn, now Brooklyn to Phoenix, 10 games, I get it. You can't get crazy about. But his legacy is going to take a bit of a hit here if he does not become a champion in the Valley. And that's what I'm going to say here. Because everybody's going to look at the two championships at Golden State, and mind you, he's the best player on that team. I get it. Even better than Curry, winning those two finals MVPs, Klay Thompson, etc., But since then, what has he done? And I understand nursing injuries, coming back from the Achilles, Brooklyn, the toe on the three-point line, they could have beat Milwaukee in that second-round series. Understood, get it, etc. And this isn't a knock on Durant as a player, person, etc. But for a guy who's been a ring chaser, and a guy that foiled in Brooklyn, and now had a... I'm not going to go as far as saying a renaissance, but had an extra shot knowing that, all right, I'm on a Phoenix team... That's pretty much built. I got D-Book. At the time, he had Chris Paul. No longer Chris Paul. Swap him for Bradley Beal. All right, let's do this. And they're 4-6 and so far in the first 10 games of the season. So you have that. I know the Timberwolves have been a surprise 7-2, and so give it up to them. As the T-Wolves, hopefully maturity will be a lot better than it has in years past. So you got that. If you're in the Twin Cities, good for them. And then your other surprise, even the Bucks, they haven't clicked on all cylinders. And I understand five and four. It's not as if they're two and seven or even three and six for that matter, as I mentioned there with the LA Clippers. But you would have thought with Lillard, an injection there for Giannis and company. And he had 54 in a game last week. And did they lose? I think they lost in that game where he had 54. So who knows what's going to happen there with the Bucs. You would think that they're going to get their season on track. The next thing you know, they're going to be at the top of the Eastern Conference. But you got some slow starts there and you got some big starts too. Those are some of the early season stories. Even the Pacers have played well, even with the loss last night in Philadelphia, as I mentioned, as they're currently 6-4, were 6-3 last night. So that's what you have there with the basketball. Other than that, eh, let me see as I look around. No, that's what you got. Maybe I'll get into a little bit more NBA there on Thursday. And then in the NHL to wrap up, San Jose, break them up. They finally not won one game, but won two games. And remember last Monday, I talked about how they were 0-10-1. and 1. 
They lost back-to-back games where they gave up 10 goals. They were outscored 55-12 to in their first 11 games. And now break them up. They got themselves two games into the win column. And now let's see, not to say that they're going to go on some sort of stretch or streak. I would think that is certainly not going to be the case. But you have to be at least a little bit impressed that even though they got the one win under their belt and off the schneid, that they were able to tack on another win and not just rest on their laurels to think that, all right, now that's over and done with, we could go back to playing terrible hockey. Of course, that was not the case, but we would think San Jose, even with that rugged start, are going to have a long season. And they're already a quarter of the way to the eight wins, as I talked about last Monday, as the Capitals won eight games in that 74-75 year, 8-67-5. So look at that. They are a quarter of the way into reaching... and. You would think they're going to win at least 15 games when it's all said and done. So, they weren't going to go 0 in 81 and 1. That we knew for sure. But, kudos to them for getting their first two wins under their belt. And even since then, they've lost two in a row. So, give it up for the Sharks there. But you also have another team in that division out in the Pacific. And I talked about this last Monday. At 2-7-1, does Jay Woodcroft, the coach of the Edmonton Oilers, survive? And he did not. He was given his pink slip. And the interim, I believe, is a guy. I was at first looked at his name. I said, is there any relation to Chuck Knobloch, the former second baseman of the Twins and Yankees of yesteryear? Uh, that obviously was not the case. But the Oilers had to make a switch. A team with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and the offensive firepower that they have, there was no way that he was going to survive this. And that was 2-7-1, and one, and now they're currently 3-9-1. and one, And the Islanders actually play there tonight. But the current coach that they brought up from the AHL, his name is Chris Knobloch. I don't know if there is any relation. Let me see if I could s- scroll down and see that real quick. And Knobloch, who is recently the head coach of the Rangers Hartford Woolpack. So for... Woodcroft and all the expectations there in Edmonton went right into the toilet and just a tough break for them. And also Dave Manson, a former tough guy there, the Blackhawks, and played on a bunch of teams in the NHL back in the 80s and 90s. He was also let go. So tough break for Edmonton, but they dug themselves a deep hole and something had to be done. And even bringing that up, who knows? Maybe my crystal ball had that spot-on, bullseye, dead accurate for... Woodcroft to be fired, not that you want to see that, but when you have the talent that they have and to get off to that type of start, you knew his days were going to be numbered there in Edmonton. And as we saw there, there in middle of the week, he is kaput, adios, gone there out of Edmonton. And as we take a look around the NHL, everything is going to be, as we've talked about, status quo. We know the Bruins have played well. I know the Panthers have certainly got it out of their early season funk as they had a little bit of a hangover, but now they've won four in a row and are currently in second place in the Atlantic. Rangers continue to play well. Islanders have not played well, let's face it, and I'm not even going to get into them right now. We also have Dallas and Colorado still playing well at the top of the Central. Vegas, even Vancouver, give it up for them. They've also have been surprising here coming out of the gate as they're just two points behind the Golden Knights in the Pacific. Kraken, eh, been middling around, and I thought that the Kraken may take a step back considering the year they had last year. Blackhawks, how about Connor Bedard? Four-point game against the Lightning the other day. One of the youngest to do so. I believe he's the youngest in NHL history to do so. And he did it in, what, his 15th game? Or maybe less than that. I'm overstating that. He did it, I believe it was in his 11th game. So Bedard, four points, two goals, two assists against Tampa, showing his prowess and what may come for the number one pick in this year's draft so we know that the Blackhawks they are not going to have a big season but with Bedard and being a future face of the league and especially in that market an original 16 we have to pay attention to but other than that that's what you have there in the NHL and that's going to be it for the podcast but I'll be back on Thursday full promise as we get through the Holiday season, 10 days from today, as I mentioned. Looking forward to it and looking forward to producing more content for you guys and gals as I thank you very much for stopping by to carve out precious moments out of your day to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I'd greatly appreciate it. Hit me up on any of my socials. I'll be back on the scene, crispy and clean. 
the old line from the Black Sheep, The Choice Is Yours song, YouTube, at JReels, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, The JReels Podcast, X, Twitter, JReels1, just the number. Hit me up with a question, comment, or suggestion, or do it the old-fashioned way at the JReels Podcast at gmail.com. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals, because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood, it's in the DNA. As I mentioned, a lot is coming down the pike here to close out this year and into next year, and I promise you that. So you want to stay tuned. I'm going to post more on my socials. Obviously, this past week was an anomaly, being away and not around the social media platforms as I have been, more so on YouTube than the others. I'll admit, hand high in the air, but that's going to change, and that will change, especially as I put forth this podcast today. You know I'm going to bring the pain, people. Anything that's happening in sports, it's going to be nothing but fire, passion, fury, energy with my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critiques, praise, feelings on anything and everything. That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Center to South Pacific and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>